Hi, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. Six episodes in, and we're still talking about that first sentence of our fairy tale. That's because the code written into it is so rich and complex. What's fascinating here is that it's been so masterfully hidden in the few simple words of such a deceptively simple declarative sentence. So, at least as a reminder, let's listen to that sentence once again. Es war einmal ein armer Holzhacker, der wohnte vor einem großen Wald. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter, who lived before a great forest. And now here we all are, sitting in the religion section of the library surrounded by shelf upon shelf of books about the history of apostolic poverty. And that's all because our intuition has been whispering that this is what the word poor in our fairy tale means to imply. In other words, we're getting a whiff of religious humility that's not only emanating from that single four-letter word, there might as well be clouds of holy incense filling the metaphoric space between the lines of the entire fairy tale. And if that intuitive sense is on the money, or lack of it, somewhere in these library stacks, we're either going to find our woodcutter's family album, or be able to piece one together. Of course, this isn't the only branch of our woodcutter's family tree. It's just the one most strongly associated with voluntary poverty and religious humility. So, where to begin? Where to begin? It's so hard to choose an exact date to dial into our time machine. The history of voluntary poverty and asceticism in the Greco-Roman West probably begins with the pre-Socratics and Pythagoreans. And it certainly includes one of the most famous voluntary paupers of all time, Diogenes of Sinope, who died in 323 B.C. Diogenes was the snarky, cynic philosopher who's most famous for carrying a lighted lamp around Athens during the day, searching for an honest man. And while those guys and gals are all indeed ancestors of our woodcutter, They belong to the more philosophical branch of the family, not the theological branch. Right now, we're just looking for our woodcutter's poor, pious religious relatives, the ones with roots in Judeo-Christian history. And that would mean the so-called desert fathers and mothers of North Africa and the Middle East, although they too had predecessors. So let's go back to about 300 B.C., where we find some of our woodcutter's Jewish ancestors, the most famous of them being known as the Essenes. 
Now, they were not only big on voluntary poverty and communal brotherly love, it's also known that they made a point of adopting orphans and abandoned children. What makes them particularly famous these days is that they're associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, although those were only discovered in the mid-20th century. What made them super famous back in the Grimm zeitgeist? Well, that was in 1707. An influential philosopher by the name of Johann Georg Wachter decided that not only had John the Baptist been an Essene, but so was his uh, more famous cousin. Mm, You know who. And while there's absolutely no proof that this is a true historical fact, the rumor, which amounts to a specious family legend, well, that was taken as gospel by just about everybody. And so, speaking of uh, you-know-who, after he came and went, we come across another more diverse group of poverty lovers among the surprisingly thick branches of our woodcutter's family tree. They were known as Ebionites. And by diverse, I mean they were not only a mix of Christians, Jews, and Gnostics. Apparently their interests, aims, and philosophies were all somewhat mixed. And that makes it hard to know for sure if any of them really were related to our woodcutter, except their family name? Mm, That says it all. Ebion is apparently one way of saying poor in Hebrew. Finally, around the 3rd century of the Common Era, we have a group where the family resemblance to our woodcutter is much more obvious. And in the entire history of apostolic poverty, they were number one. Because they were, in fact, the very first group to announce that they wanted to live just like the apostles. And they called themselves apostolics. These first apostolics were such fanatics, or I mean they were so piously austere and self-disciplined, they came to be known as apotactics, which means renunciators, or those who abstain. They not only renounced all property, they abstained from um, um, marriage. Of course, that means none of them were great-great-grandfathers or grandmothers of our woodcutter, but they still must have been aunts or uncles or cousins. And, uh, oh yeah, did I mention the Essenes and Ebionites and these apostolics? They were all considered heretics. Which, as I said in the last episode, is something that often happened in this branch of the family. Now, there was a distinct offshoot of the family tree, a certain poor group that was not considered heretical. In fact, just the opposite. And they also add another meaning to the word poor. Poor, as in forlorn or doomed. It's a separate branch of the family that must surely have us feeling pity, sadness, and deep compassion. And that's because for about 300 years after the death of Christ, Poverty wasn't the only technology available for Christians to reach eternal salvation and perfect post-mortem bliss. There was martyrdom. So while some of our woodcutters' um, blood relatives embraced the opportunity for martyrdom, others 
ran like hell, as fast and as far as their legs would carry them, away from the Romans and persecution. Which is how they ended up in the desert, as the so-called desert fathers and mothers. Two of these desert fathers were made super famous throughout medieval Europe by way of hagiography, or literature about the lives of the saints and martyrs. The most famous of those books was called The Golden Legend. In fact, it was one of the most popular books of the Middle Ages. And since it reads more like entertaining fiction and fairy tale than not, it probably was read more for entertainment purposes than anything else. Now, as entertaining as it might be, we're going to leave it up there on the shelf. And instead, let's open up a different book of hagiography. This one's known as The Lausiac History, which is specifically about these desert fathers and mothers. And while the name alone makes it sound about as dry as the desert sands, this too has some real entertainment value. In fact, reading about these desert saints is an awful lot like reading about celebrities. All gossip and innuendo. And for sure, some of them were worshipped in pretty much the same spirit as Marilyn Monroe or Elvis or Princess Di. Now, the very first of the Desert Fathers to be named is a particular Paul, St. Paul of Thebes, who died around 341 Common Era, and who's otherwise known as the first Christian hermit. We know from his story that it was the very human abhorrence of torture and violent death that led him to flee out into the desert. We also know that many Christians eventually followed his lead, and that of St. Anthony the Great, in becoming ascetic hermits and anchorites. What we don't know, and what I personally find intriguing, is that many of them may or may not have been extroverts. Because you gotta think, of those who were, you can be sure that they alone were the true ascetic saints. In this time of COVID-19, I think we all realize that only extroverts could have experienced their extreme form of desert isolation to be a torturous fate, or, I mean, a pious ascetic practice, far more difficult to embrace than physical martyrdom. Well, after Paul, there's Tony, St. Anthony the Great, who is famous in both hagiography and art history. His biography includes vivid descriptions of the fantastic and demonic tormentors who visited him in his desert isolation. And so, down the centuries, artists were only too happy to turn those verbal descriptions into paintings and drawings. Big Tony, who may have been an introvert and quite happy with being a hermit, well, he went off into the desert sometime after the year 270. But then... After about 40 years of isolation, he decided he wanted to go with Plan B and die as a martyr. Now, unfortunately for Anthony, he came to the idea just a little too late. He returned to civilization and tried to get himself arrested and thrown to the lions. But, you see, in 313 of the Common Era, with Constantine's Edict of Milan, martyrdom at least in the West, was taken off the table. And so for Anthony, 
There was nothing he could do but return to the extreme poverty, asceticism, and isolation of Plan A. Next, among the desert ancestors of our woodcutter, the name of Simeon, St. Simeon Stylides, or Simeon the Stylite. Well, he stands out um, above all others as a kind of evil Knievel of ascetics. And he deserves special mention for taking asceticism to um, new heights. You really have to read about him for yourself to appreciate him, so I'll leave a link in the show notes. And I really encourage you to go ahead and um, look him um, up. Well, after Paul and Anthony, things started getting a little crowded out there in the desert with all those hermits and anchorites, and it didn't take long before some of them decided to band together in monasteries. And that, of course, would have had to be genuine torture for the introverts among them. Who knows? Anyway, this cenobitic or monastic movement was the model followed by most Europeans. Given that there's no extensive desert country in Europe fit for anchorites and hermits, the sheer numbers of monasteries throughout Europe suggest that grouping together in a conceptual hermitage was so much easier to accomplish and way more practical than going off in search of a real desert. So I think here's where it might be a good idea to mention the difference between a hermit and an anchorite. If you look those words up in a dictionary, they pretty much say the same thing. A person who lives alone and apart from society for religious purposes. Anchorites, though, they were a very particular breed of hermit. Unlike simple religious hermits, anchorites took solemn vows to live out their lives in a cell or anchor hold. And for most European anchorites, that actually meant the utterly morbid matter of immuration. Think Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. Anchorites chose to have themselves bricked into a kind of prison cell adjacent to a church, with nothing but a small window to observe mass, and a couple of tiny windows for air and food and what have you. Some of them even had a kind of freestanding Rapunzel-like space in the middle of town. And this gave them the kind of practical, ascetic, and complete isolation they craved, even in the midst of a community. Okay, so let's put away the Lausiac history and start paging through some of these books about monasteries and monks. Right away we find three great patriarchs of our woodcutter's family, all associated with the history of Christian monasticism, East and West. What makes them interesting to us is their part in a rags-to-riches story. St. Pacomius, who died in 348, was famous for organizing some of his neighboring hermits into the first Cenobitic groups, and is generally recognized as the founder of Christian monasticism. And my guess is that Pacomius, for obvious reasons, he had to be an extrovert. St. Basil the Great of Caesarea who died in 379, well, he was also a famous organizer of monasteries. And he's known to have embraced a more moderate lifestyle, as opposed to the extremes of asceticism that some groups of monks may have preferred. What marks him as a genuine ancestor of our woodcutter is the fact that he very explicitly wrote homilies and epistles 
condemning child abandonment. In fact, some of what he wrote amounts to a very moving description of exactly what our woodcutter is thinking and feeling later on in the story when he decides to go ahead and abandon his two children. St. Benedict of Nursia, who died around 547, well, he's famous for the so-called Rule of Benedict, which was codified around the year 535. Benedict's rule became the basic norm in the West because of its clarity, perhaps, but also because it was, like Basil's rule, much more practical and moderate, appealing to a less fanatic, I mean strict, sort of European character. Apparently, as clear as it was, following the rule of Benedict wasn't as straightforward as the monks themselves would have hoped. Given so many different personality types among them, including that most basic difference between introverts and extroverts, it's only logical that different monks would interpret even the most basic and straightforward concepts differently and according to their own personality preferences. Fact is, many different ideas and rules were, indeed, tried out over the next 500 years without any great success which probably means that groups of monks would come together for maybe a century or so, or maybe even just a few decades, and then disappear, each new group having to once again reinvent the wheel. Whatever success there was, however, happened to be of the temporal variety. All these monks, perhaps in spite of themselves, found they were no longer poor. And with the end of poverty came plenty of temptations to overindulge in all sorts of earthly delights. So clearly, something needed to be done to avoid moving up the economic scale, not to mention figuring out some sort of sustainable recruitment strategy. It took about 400 years in Europe for things to finally click. And sure enough, They did it by virtue of our famously recurring theme. A return to that old-time religion. In other words, the ways of the past. In particular, they returned to the ascetic discipline of strict voluntary poverty. Even so, they were still not our famous mendicants. These next three branches of the woodcutter family didn't need to beg for their daily bread because they baked diligent hard work into their monastic brands. The first of these were the Cluniac Benedictines, who started out in the year 909. They were famous for developing the first administrative structure that was easy to understand, implement, and reproduce. In other words, they developed the first successful monastic franchise. And their version of hard work was education and proselytizing, teaching and preaching. The Benedictines were also famous for their moral reforms, eliminating simony and concubinage from their repertoire. Surprising or not, celibacy was not always required of Catholic clergy. We have, in fact, the example of one pronouncement from the Council of Lyon in 1274, which specifically forbids bigamy among clerics, but otherwise says nothing of marriage. Well, 
all of this diligence and self-discipline contributed greatly to the Benedictine's success and longevity. But it could be argued that it was an innovation of their HR department that really sealed the deal. The Benedictines incorporated a very successful recruitment program called oblation into their rules. Now, oblation just means an offering or gift. However, it was this particular form of um, gifting that not only swelled their ranks, it turned child abandonment into a good and holy thing. More on that in future episodes. By the 11th century, the Benedictine model had become sort of the McDonald's of monasticism. And yet, some monks found that open communal living as a Benedictine just wasn't to their taste. Like the Anchorites, they were hungry for hermetic isolation within community. Although, unlike the Anchorites, they weren't interested in lifelong solitary confinement. What they were interested in was absolute silence. And they found what they were looking for within the newly formed Carthusian model. My guess is that the vast majority of them had to be true introverts. If you're interested, there's even a two and a half hour film documenting the Carthusian model. It's called Into Great Silence. And being an introvert myself, I find it fascinating. I'll leave a link in the show notes. So, if the Benedictines were chiefly white collar teachers and preachers, the Cistercians, who opened up shop in the late 11th century, they were all blue collar. Their version of hard work was manual labor and farming. They often chose to work fields which were considered the least fertile and thus requiring the most intense labor. As to their growth and recruitment, they owed most of their significant popularity to the golden-tongued influence and abiding fame of their first saint, Bernard of Clairvaux. What's surprising about all these hard-working groups is that Despite their strict policy of voluntary poverty, they all achieved even greater worldly success than their predecessors, simply by virtue of observing their own monastic rules. Now, maybe that success is only surprising, considering the preferred economic models and tenets of our own zeitgeist. Nowadays, it might be hard to imagine such great financial success based on a kind of self-disciplined, socialist model of communal living and sharing. Actually, these monasteries function more like great capitalist corporations, with the monks and bishops being the local feudal shareholders, while the suits mostly lived at corporate headquarters in the Vatican. The workers themselves, who in so many instances were oblates, and inculcated from infancy in the company philosophy, Well, they expected nothing in return for their labors other than their daily bread and the ultimate Christmas bonus to be paid in the form of eternal salvation. What's not at all surprising is that monastic financial success was accompanied by the age-old narcissistic greed that money and power typically attracts.
these men and women were only human. And despite the thickness of monastery walls, apparently nothing could hide the myriad instances of greed and indiscretion some of these monks indulged in. There were, in fact, scandalous indiscretions that the local lay people, as well as the monks themselves, observed with embarrassment and alarm. And since celibacy was not a prerequisite for ecclesiastic office, well, that could explain how they ended up having Hansel and Gretel as descendants. Just saying. Well, it looks like it's just about closing time at the library. So before we wrap it up for today, there's one more branch of the family I want to mention, because sometime in the 11th or 12th century, they provided a watershed moment in the history of voluntary poverty. And with a name like Umiliati, or Humble Ones, you can be sure they're related to our woodcutter. The Umiliati began as a group of Italian noblemen from Lombardy who were taken to Germany as hostages by one of the Holy Roman Emperors. During their captivity, they chose to adopt a serious practice of voluntary poverty. And having learned some very handy things about the wool trade in Germany, they too, like the Benedictines and Cistercians, they didn't need to beg. After their release from captivity, they returned to Lombardy as entrepreneurs, bringing German innovations and improvements to the wool trade there. That said, it's not their connection to Germany that makes them especially interesting to us. What does make them interesting is the fact that, back in Lombardy, they became a genuine non-profit organization, providing jobs for the local populace and pouring all of their profits back into the local community instead of their own pockets. What's also interesting is that in the year 1184, they were condemned by Pope Lucius III as heretics. And I gotta say, this business of forcing a pope to write a bull declaring you a heretic was fast becoming something of a merit badge, if not a full-fledged family trait among our woodcutter's ancestors. Well, 17 years later, Pope Innocent III decided that, you know, they really weren't heretics after all. And so, given renewed papal approval, they went on to become a highly successful order of monks and they flourished for about 400 years, until February 7th, 1571. That's the day when Pope Pius V announced, in a papal bull, of course, that he'd had enough of them. Now, the story goes that some members of the group hired an assassin to get rid of Carlo Borromeo, who was Archbishop of Milano at the time, and who was being as they say in Italian, a royal rompicoglioni, a uh, ball-breaker. The assassination attempt failed, and so while they weren't declared heretics, they were officially extinguished, abolished, and suppressed. Oddly enough, this is only the first time that Carlo, otherwise known as St. Charles Borromeo, makes an appearance in our story. And, rompicoglioni that he is, it won't be the last. Okay, they're flicking the lights on and off now. I guess it's time to pack it in for now. 
In the next episode, we're going to get down and dirty with a whole raft of colorful characters in our woodcutter's ancestry. I think you're going to enjoy it, because these next few pages of the family album, they read an awful lot like chapters out of Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. In the meantime, I've prepared a PDF with the 1810 manuscript version of Hansel and Gretel, which, as you know, is the version I'm working from in the podcast. I've included the original German, along with my personal translation of it, and I've also included the final 1857 version of the story, along with Margaret Hunt's 1884 translation, for a comparison. I'll be able to send it to you, for free of course, as soon as I finish setting up that pesky email subscription thingy on the website, which should be in the next few days. The website, as you probably know, is betweenthelines.xyz. I do hope you'll visit and sign up. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti.